0: Hey, Rich, welcome to Network Capital. We're excited to have a conversation with you. So let's get started. Uh, could you tell us a bit about what you do?
1: Sure. Uh, thank, thanks for having me on, Utkarsh. Really appreciate the opportunity to really share the story of transforming the way that therapeutic and drug uh, development is done in the world. Uh, a little bit about myself before to, to answer your question Uh, Just for the audience, my name is Rich Horgan. I am the founder and uh, executive officer of a nonprofit based in the United States called Cure Rare Disease. We're working to disrupt and change the paradigm of how drug development is done for rare and genetic diseases. As an overview, uh, traditional therapeutic or drug development generally takes somewhere between 10 to 12 years from ideation to commercialization, that would be an approval of a drug for a population, and somewhere on the magnitude of $1 to $2 billion. And the, the real core of the problem is that today's patients likely won't see tomorrow's treatments simply because the development time is so long and the cost so high.
0: Got it. Um, good. And... What are you doing around this area?
1: Sure. So, so the, the story really starts with my younger brother, Terry. Uh, Terry's four years my junior. And, and Terry was unfortunately born with a disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, oftentimes, it's referred to as either DMD by the acronym name or simply muscular dystrophy. Basically, what this disease is, is it's characterized by progressive muscle weakness and loss, ultimately leading to, to death. And currently, there's, there's really no effective treatment or therapy for the majority of the population, unfortunately. And so many, many families, my own included, are told to you know, go, home and, go home and love them, meaning there's nothing you can do. Uh, try try uh, what you can uh, to, to live a happy life. But at the end of the day, um, you know, there, there's nothing much you can do to stop this disease. And, and that's really what frustrated my family and I since the beginning. Uh, unfortunately, this is not my first family's bout with muscular dystrophy. My mother's three brothers all had uh, and passed away from Duchenne muscular dystrophy. And the difficulty is is that, you know, the time between my, my mother's brothers being affected and passing away and, and my brother being affected by it is somewhere on the magnitude of 30 to 40 years. And really the frustrating part is, is that there's been little to no progress made in those 30 to 40 years. And so, you know, I came into this story um, a, a, with the perspective of a brother. You know, I think to many, disease is a nebulous concept. Uh, to me and those impacted by the disease, though, it's very real. With Terry having Duchenne, uh, you know, it, it, radically, changed, it re- radically changed my family and I's world. Um, Terry was diagnosed when he was four years old, and he's fought for over 20 years against this disease in hopes of having a treatment. One of my first memories, really, of the horrors of Duchenne came when I was 13. My brother, who was nine at the time, dad and I went to see a a children's movie called Chicken Little. Uh, Leading the way into the theater, I remember setting our snacks down on the third or fourth row up. And as I turned around in the darkened movie theater um, with previews running in the background, my uh, dad and brother were were only a few steps behind me or so, I thought. But when I turned around uh, and I saw through the darkness, they were held up at the first step. At the time, I was a bit confused, um, and, and I motioned for them to join me. Uh, but it was it was really then that I saw that my brother was struggling to walk up the first step. Uh, he kept trying, but his legs couldn't muster the strength to climb that step until my dad picked him up. Um, after that day, I really never saw steps the same way. And it would become one of the first of many instances that started this all-consuming fire in me to end not only this disease for my brother, but to save other others who are affected by it. And so years like this passed by and stories like these accumulated, and I pushed myself to re- really try to be the best in hopes of creating an opportunity to fight back against this disease. Uh, 12 years later from, from, that, from that time, um, I would go on to found Cure Rare Disease with our unprecedented mission to rapidly develop customized therapeutics in a way that pharmaceutical companies uh, have been unable or, or simply maybe unwilling to do as a for-profit entity. And so around that time, Um, I I started to form a team and and pull together the best and brightest uh, researchers in the world. And then you might ask, you know, how how is this possible? Why haven't other people done this before? Uh, The the answer is twofold, really. In the last five years, technology has rapidly advanced to a point where we can not only understand the mutations in an individual's DNA, especially those that cause disease, but act to correct those life-threatening mutations. You know, in 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 a short time in our in our existence, you know, we this foundation has been around a little over two years, and really customized therapeutics has gotten started in the last 10, 10 months or so. Um, in the short time of our existence, we formed this collaboration with world leading researchers, clinicians, and gen- geneticists. Excuse me, many of whom it was surprising to find weren't incentivized to work together due to the funding systems. Uh, funding systems are competitive, and so they're they're they really unfortunately, push a tone of anti-collaboration. But by funding this group of researchers, which comes from six different institutions across the United States, some institutions such as Boston Children's Hospital, with luminaries such as Dr. Lewis Kunkel, to the University of Massachusetts, to the University of California, Los Angeles, and others in the mix, such as Nationwide Children's Hospital, and and one one of our lead collaborators is Yale School of Medicine. Um, what we're hoping for by funding this collaboration, that in less than a year, this time next summer, what we want to do is, is, is try to be in clinical trial with the first patient, who's my brother. But to take a step back, maybe I could tell you about uh, yeah, the process.
0: So because your brother is, um, you know, he has limited time and he absolutely needs the medication, right? He, he does. I mean, I mean.
1: That's, that is absolutely what it is at the end of the day. But the, what it is is that these boys that are boys and young men impacted by specifically Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but more broadly, rare disease, time is the biggest problem. There's simply not enough time to wait 10 years and $2 billion to maybe get a therapeutic. And that's where the essence of my, my earlier statement came from is that the way that things are currently done with drug development is that today's patients likely won't live to see tomorrow's therapeutics. And that is extremely heartbreaking. And that is what we're trying to change.
0: How did this idea start? Uh, I can uh, understand your passion, but how did you translate that into a working product?
1: It's, it's a great question. I, I mean, uh, as you are well aware, there's, there's a lot of passionate people, but trying to translate that into an actionable outcome is I think what separates um, the good from the great. And where we started, you know, this, this idea of developing a customized therapeutic, one based on the individual's G- DNA, their genetic profile, um, rationally designed for them rather than an entire population, it's, 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 uh, it's new, but it's not never been done before. There was an amazing story in 2017, a researcher, one of our collaborators, in fact, Dr. Timothy Yu at Boston Children's Hospital here in, in Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, encountered a little girl with uh, what would later be diagnosed as Batten's disease, much like childhood ALS. And this little girl had a little bit less than a year to live, by all estimates. She was rapidly declining, losing motor function, losing losing other functions rapidly. And so within uh, a year, Dr. Yu and his team at Boston Children's Hospital developed, based on her genetic profile—again, whole genome sequencing— establishing a cell line, which is like a patient in a dish to understand whether this therapeutic's working working in a dish that they, that they developed. Within this year, Dr. Yu and his team developed a customized therapeutic based on the little girl that would go on to be dosed in her, and, and it saved her life, simply put. And so at that point, we said, wow, if you can do this for one, how can you design a system that can do this for many? And that's where we began and then started we to pull together this was this was 2018 this was uh when we when i started to pull together these these researchers um it was it was uh i would say mid it was about this time last year actually (laughs) funny enough yeah I, i uh we got the leading luminaries the leading clinicians uh the leading researchers all to come together to work on this project not as as competitors but as collaborators and and for those listeners out there who, you know, have experience working in academia, this is one of the hardest things to do because the system simply don't incentivize this type of, of collaboration.
0: Um, and at that time, were you uh, in the middle of business school or had you graduated
1: uh, so at that time, I was, well, this was August, so I was nearing the end of business school. I would go on to, well, no, actually, I just graduated. My, my Sorry, this is May 2018 when I I graduated in May 2018, and we, we really brought this collaboration together in August 2018, so a couple months later. But while in uh, business school in Boston, I'd been working on this uh, during school, forming the organization, developing the network. Um, and and as, uh, as luck would have it, what Dr. You did at Boston Children's Hospital acted as a, as a catalyst for, for this, or not only this organization, but, but so far, this, this amazing work that's been done in relatively short period of time.
0: So, when you entered business school, that must have been 2016, uh, right. did you enter business school thinking that you'll also try and work to, towards this problem, or did you have a completely different goal?
1: So I, I, it, it's, a, it's a complicated question. Um, I entered business school knowing I wanted to do something that would help my brother. Uh, you know, I think earlier on I mentioned that, you know, I, I always tried to work my hardest to provide an opportunity where I would be able to actually affect positive change for Terry and others impacted. But at the time, you know, entering business school, I really hadn't developed the construct or the framework around what that change would be. And so I I tried to spend a lot of business school simply meeting the people and developing the network and understanding what was out there, why it wasn't working, and what we could do differently. And what we could do differently came in the form of this idea to do therapeutic development based on the individual in a way that would allow us to develop a customized therapy for the individual in less than two years. And, And that's what really kicked off once I graduated.
0: I see. And this seems like a fairly technical field that uh, you've ventured in. Uh, Could you explain, like, did you have relevant background in biology or stem cell research or anything of that sort? If not, what was your journey to uh, Harvard Business School that prepared you to solve this problem?
1: Yeah, so no, I, I, I don't have a PhD, uh, although uh, sometimes it'd be nice to have one, I think. Um, no, my background, my undergrad was done at Cornell University in economics, and then my MBA at Harvard. Uh, but what what I did early on is that I knew I was never going to be the scientist in the lab, but I knew I had to be able to communicate and talk about an assi- in about the science in a way that both lay people understood, but also in a way that I could keep up with with researchers who were uh, far, far, far more accomplished than I was, and so what I tried to do is I tried to surround myself with with mentors and peer uh, with mentors who I could ask these questions to, who I could go and say, you know, tell me what to read, you know, just point me in the right direction. I, I can figure out the rest. Um, and that's what I did. And, and one of those first first really and still is very close mentors is is Dr. Lou Kunkel. Dr. Kunkel discovered the dystrophin gene, the gene that causes Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Um, in 1986, and and he's widely regarded as a luminary in the neuromuscular field, uh, having discovered that gene, and and after you know, continuing to build the network with others is is where I went to next. After graduating from Harvard Business, I uh, was accepted into the Blavatnik Fellowship, which is a great catalyst that Harvard Business School um, has, thanks to the support of of uh, Mr. Len of Sir Len Blavatnik. Um, of access industries and and basically the program is a support system where they will say uh, You know, we want you to push forward science. That's your mandate. We're here to provide a network and 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 a And a a modest salary for you to do that in the meantime And so that's been a wonderful program and and truly a game changer for me in advancing this is it allowed me to to take that risk and and I don't come from a background of, of wealth and influence um, and so for me, it was, it was an amazing opportunity to make an already very, very difficult job just a little bit easier because knowing, you know, knowing that, that I'd have the support of Harvard Business School and, and the Blavatnik Fellowship um, was, was extremely enabling.
0: Um, you know, for the next few minutes, let's divide this, uh, con- this question into three parts. First would be uh, the time between Cornell and Harvard Business School. The second part would be Harvard Business School itself, and the third part would be uh, what you're doing right now after graduation as a Blavatnik Fellow. So um, what were you doing between Cornell and HBS, and uh, how was this problem? Uh, it was obviously at the back of your mind, but how were you trying to get equipped to solve it, if, any, if at all?
1: You know, the, the, the simple answer to this question, uh, Udkarsh, is that is that I wasn't. You know, a, a lot of my experience growing up with this, this disease and my brother having it has been has been the most impactful and 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 powerful and emotional and sad and every sort of word you want to throw into that bucket that it, it could have been. Um, you know, I think people's perception and understanding of disease changes over time. You know, as a kid again Terry's 4 years younger than me as a kid you really don't recognize what disease is as a kid you're like you know there's there's a person there's another person there's maybe a person in a wheelchair but but you don't you don't assign different thoughts to the people you know people are people when you're a kid it's when you get older and you start to realize as as I did the ramifications of of what a fatal disease means that it starts to really have a strong impact on your psyche and your your development as a person and so you know, through through my most formative years up and through now, this disease has always been a part of my life. Um, as a teenager, you know, I I dealt and grappled with uh, feelings of powerlessness, feelings of anger and and hopelessness and frustration that no matter what was happening, it was all a downhill slope. And so that 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 burned into me this this need to do something and and at the time as a teenager it it took the form of doing well in school because that's all I could do to fight back and then having doing well and getting into Cornell that that enabled me to set my sights and start to form at least a vision of what I would want to do I didn't know what the details were but I knew okay I'm not a scientist so therefore business is my natural way to go and and what's the best business school? OK, Harvard, we have to go there. We have to get this done. And so in between Cornell and Harvard, you know, again, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And for a long time, like many families, you sort of bury your head in the sand and say, you know, it's all going to be fine or, or someone else will take care of it or or big pharma will 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 develop a treatment. You know none of that's happened in my life, and none of that's happened in in millions of other people's lives impacted by rare disease, genetic disease. Um, at that point when I got to Harvard, I realized that that if you if you really want something done and you want it done quickly and you want to be able to do it for the people you love, then you have to do it yourself because what I found is as I've learned more, you know once I entered Harvard, I was able to um, you know, meat researchers, pharma researchers, academics, nonprofits. You know, unfortunately, everybody has their own incentives. And and what I found is that while while pharma companies are working very hard, they are confined to a singular construct, and that construct is a for-profit construct. And unfortunately, that's just not fast enough for many of these rare diseases. And so, um, once I got to to, H, to Harvard Business School, to to the second part of your question. It was there that I started to understand, okay, these are the therapeutic developments. What's amenable to my brother? What's amenable? Who's left out of what's going on right now? And the answer was 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 shockingly scary. The, the answer was, you know, he, any boy who's who's non-ambulatory, who's who's advanced in this disease progression, is is going to be forgotten. Therapeutics will never get to them in time. And and that that was that realization was one of the most bone chilling realizations I ever, ever had that that Terry's not going to be helped, Terry's going to be forgotten. And so once I once I had that realization, I knew we had to do something. Like I, I knew that no matter what, whether win or lose or 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 fail and burn out whatever, that something different had to be done. And and it was through. Through luck or fate or whatever you may have it that this development that I mentioned earlier with Dr. Tim U at Boston Children's Hospital, the first customized therapeutic had a, had 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 been happening, and so once I saw at least a little potential, I I jumped on it, and I started. I just I you know one day I said, okay, I need a nonprofit. How does a nonprofit raise money? They host events. Okay, what's what's the event going to be? And so. The first ever event that, that we hosted, I said, you know, I, I called up my mom and dad and said, hey, mom and dad, I want to throw a gala. I want to form this nonprofit and throw a gala to support research. And uh, it, it, it was one day in August it was that it that
0: 2017, happened. Was it?
1: This was in 2017, yep. Yeah. So then we yeah. threw our first gala in December 2018, and and that money went to support uh, Dr. Lou Kunkel's research at Boston Children's. And then, in the meantime, after we sort of got our feet under us for for being a nonprofit, although very small, we um, the, the story with Doctor Tim Yu had, had was taking place in parallel, which led us to, after that gala in December of seventeen, really starting to pull together and and begin the process to develop a customized therapeutic in August two thousand eighteen, one one year ago.
0: And after that, you decided to immerse yourself and make it your full time job, right? And absolutely.
1: Um, Absolutely.
0: What have been some of the most rewarding and uh, some of the most challenging experiences in the past two years as you arm yourself to solve this for Terry and for other other people?
1: You know, Utkarsh, what I'd have to say is is in response to the to the what's been you know what's been a positive surprise. I'd have to say it's the people. You know, a, a year ago today, it's it's just. I, I just can't believe where we are right now. It's I wouldn't have dreamed it in a million years. But the people that have come out to support and and help and do whatever they can to, to make this happen is is nothing short of touching. You know, a specific antidote is a we are working with several researchers at Charles River, which is a. Um, it's a contract research organization that's a global organization that will uh, do various things in the in the drug development process, whether that's breeding mice or testing a therapeutic or preparing for a, 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 a regulatory filing. You know, I was connected to this group uh, a few months ago, and and I must say the people at Charles River have been nothing short of amazing. They are so fast to respond. They are so focused on the end goal. That it's 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 been one of the most touching experiences, and and I would have to say, secondly, you know I could I could go on and list people and groups that have been amazing, but you know we we received support from from uh, from from Len Blavatnik uh, back in February, and and his gift was transformational to getting where we are now, and, and now the mission is to say, okay, how do, how do we push that further? How do we find more people that feel this way that can affect a positive change and, and how do we with our current current stakeholders, our current donors how do we how do we show them that we're doing more with every individual dollar than I'd argue any other nonprofit in the world this This is what I think about a lot now, and it's the second part of your question really what is what has been a, a negative surprise you know when i when I unfortunately when I got into this nonprofit business uh, a bit over a bit under uh, about two years ago, you know, I, I had a naive sort of sense that, you know, nonprofits are, are generally, they all want to work together. They all want to support the greater good. You know, I've, I found that to be totally, totally untrue. Um, it's, it's extremely heartbreaking to say we have a solution here that has cured Terry's cells in a dish and we are doing this for other boys now to go to a nonprofit, another nonprofit with the similar mission, the similar disease focus, and say, let's work together. Let's make this happen together. I don't care who gets the, the, the credit at the end of the day. I just want to see this work. And every researcher on our team just wants to see this work. But to get it to work, it takes money. And, and reaching out to a, a more well-established nonprofits in the field and say, let's work together on this. You wouldn't believe the reaction, but unfortunately what, what we found is that unless a nonprofit is leading the charge, they don't want to see it. They don't want to be involved because it disrupts how they message their brand to donors. And if all of a sudden a young, hungry, lean nonprofit has a solution that can help other boys suffering from this disease, but it wasn't the brainchild of, of whatever that nonprofit may be, they're not going to help you. They, they will not help you, and that is what their donors don't know. Uh, for instance, a couple months ago, back in, I want to say, March or April, we reached out to a, a large nonprofit in the space, and, and what we wanted is we simply wanted additional cell lines, you know, more, more dishes of cells, of human cells, to test this therapeutic in to make, to make sure it, it was going to work early on. And it's a relatively straightforward request, from a nonprofit to an academic, they routinely transfer cell lines to test other therapeutics, you know, every day. You know, the response we got was, well, let's put it through our bureaucratic process, let's wait six months and maybe you'll get an answer. And I I was mortified that at that response. That that's when I really learned that 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 all non-nonprofits are not good. And and I would really urge donors to take a cautious look at the organizations that they that they donate and support because, you know, at the end of the day, all nonprofits are not created equally and and it's it's remiss to their donors. But unfortunately, it is it is the case.
0: Yeah, this is heartbreaking.
1: Um... It is. It is. And it happens every day, not only in this disease area across the disease development area, the number of ideas and potential therapies that could help many people are constantly, constantly vanquished simply because people uh, are too proud, want the credit. You know, the, 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 the fragility of human pride here has, 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 has done real damage to this disease area and, and a lot of people. And what's unfortunate is that donors, they'll never know this. Because a donor to a large nonprofit in the spa- in our space will never know that we reached out to this nonprofit. We'll never know that we have a solution that could help, and and this nonprofit you know refused to help us with this process. Um, it's it's heartbreaking, but it happens every day.
0: Time is the one thing you don't have, and uh... time
1: is what we don't have.
0: So tell me, like, how shall we race against time? What's on top of your mind and how are you trying to beat time and, you know, make, make this happen for Terry and for everybody else?
1: Sure. So, so a bit about the process of customized therapies. We start, we first need to, to design a, a customized therapeutic. We first need to understand the mutation of the individual, right? We can't go in and start rationally designing a therapeutic until we know what's going on with the individual. And so the first step of that process is, characterization of the individual. We, we do something called whole genome sequencing, where we understand down to the base pair where a gene has been mutated. And that informs the next phase, which is therapeutic development. Once we know where the, where the error is, you know, imagine, imagine you've got a bridge and, and the bridge is made up of, 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 of critical components and and for that bridge to function, you need, let's use the number 79, because there are 79 pieces of the dystrophin gene that, that make up the, the gene. You know, imagine you have a bridge with 79 pieces. Well, one of those pieces, one of those critical pieces is is broken. And that's what happened in my brother. And so whole genome sequencing allows us to understand which piece is broken so that we can go in and rationally design the piece that will fix the break. And that's what we've done. So an amazing story. About four or five months ago, after we'd characterized my brother through uh, whole genome sequencing and established what's called a cell line, you know, a patient in a dish, um, our team at Yale Medical School designed a CRISPR therapeutic construct. You might be familiar with CRISPR being genome editing. Um, it's, it's, it's really one of the newest technologies that, that humanity collectively holds a great hope for alleviating a lot of disease. And so about four or five months ago, this team at Yale medical school through the Leck lab, uh, designs a construct, tests it in my brother's cells specific to Terry. And in a dish, it, it remediates the condition. It restores the missing protein, which was awe inspiring. You know, in, in a few months, this had happened and we said oh my god this is this is working and so at that point we started to bring on others to help support the next steps of the development process. Um, we brought on Charles River Labs, who is helping with regulatory and really communicating with the FDA here, the Food and Drug Administration, which is the the entity whose whose uh, permission and guidance you need to dose a human with an experimental therapeutic.
0: Even and one human, you need need their approval. Even
1: one even one human, and and you know the FDA does a good job at, at keeping the public safe. You know what the FDA says is. For 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 a therapeutic, it's a risk benefit trade off. And so, if you've got a, a a guy who's 24 and in his real serious condition having Duchenne muscular dystrophy, they're going to work with you to make sure that you know it's safe first and foremost. What we don't want to do is we never want to cause harm. And and secondly, they want to make sure that we've thought through the development process and have the data that we need to to convince the FDA that it's safe and it'll be efficacious. And, and that's where we're at now, is, is have, starting to have those conversations in hopes that, in with the expectation and target that this time next year, we'll be dosing Terry with the first ever utilization of this therapeutic in mankind. And, and, and that's a tall order. And, and there's companies that are spending years developing this for populations, and, and I, I certainly hope they win, and I hope they're successful. But but a lot of a lot of what we're doing is is really cutting edge and has never been done before. right? This idea that we can develop therapeutics specific to the individual in relatively short periods of time with 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 capital that's uh, one and a half to two million per person uh, at the high side is is unheard of. and and that's exactly what we're doing. and And our idea is to say, okay, well, we can't go and raise one and a half to two million for every individual with a rare disease, because rare disease impacts 10% of the world's population. 7,000 rare diseases, only 5% have effective treatments. And and so what we're doing is we're trying to work with with insurance companies. Um, Here in the United States, Blue Cross Blue Shield is a big one that we're working with, to say how can we get a framework put in place so that this type of approach will be reimbursed by insurance companies. Because w- without that payer support, this becomes a very difficult game of, of raising this much money. You know, eventually we think it'll—we we, we expect to drive costs down to a million dollars or less for the therapeutic. But but once that happens, we'll, we'll need insurance companies to say, okay, we think that a therapeutic design for the individual, uh, tested in the individual cells, proven safe in, in, a, in an animal model— we'll reimburse that because what better therapeutic can you have than the one that's designed for you based on you? And that's our argument.
0: Understood. How is Terry today? And, um, how much time does he really have?
1: You know, that's a scary question. I, I, I get that. I asked that question a lot. And, um, you know, the, the short answer is I don't think any of us know how much time we really have left on this world. Um, Terry, Terry's in good spirits. Um, you know, before we started with this, Terry, Terry had no potential therapeutic. Terry had no hope. And, and there's a lot of Terrys out there. There's many, 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 many boys and young men that have Duchenne muscular dystrophy that simply aren't amenable to clinical trials right now. And beyond Duchenne, there's many, many people that just aren't amenable to development underway right now for whatever reason, whether it's ambulatory status, age, um, disease. You know, it's, it's, there's a lot of need out there. But Terry sees hope now. Terry sees that a therapeutic has cured his cells in a dish in a lab at Yale Medical Yale Medical School, and and Terry has hope. Terry's fighting every day that he can to buy time until next summer when we can dose him, and and we we have created an organization at the same time we're trying to bend and push forward the paradigm of science as humanity knows it, and it's a tall order. Uh, we've raised so far. Uh, in the last year or so, I would say about $850,000. Um, we need another million to make this happen. And, and that's what I'm driving towards, is raising that next million, that next two million, so we can get one or two or three of these boys through this process and to show that the process can work and convince insurance companies to, to, to pay for and cover this process because, because it will change the world um, if, it's, if and when it's successful. Um, but but Terry's a fighter to answer the rest of your question. He's right now He's full-time employed at Cornell University. He does uh, IT work for them And he loves it, you know work work gives him a purpose and and an outlet for him to in to add to society I think oftentimes people with disabilities feel as though they can't or aren't productive members of society But that's just not true, you know, everybody everyone has a way to contribute to society, and and I'm thankful that Terry is finding his, and I'm more thankful that he has the hope and willpower to keep fighting back because, you know, he's he's 24, you know, the average the average age at which, which these boys pass is 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 their is their mid 20s, and so it's uh, it's 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 now or never, and and what we do here in the next year. Uh, being able to raise this money will will forever change not only the life of my brother, my family, and myself, but many other individuals. Because if we can show that this works, the sky is truly the limit. We then can begin to scale this to other boys and other diseases so quickly. And to show that we have this proof of concept in hand, that it's worked in one, it gives us great power to move on to the next. And And what we like to think of it as, if we can cure one, then we can cure many.
0: Yeah, we just need to expedite this process. Is there anything we can do to make uh, the next summer summer deadline advanced by a few months? Can we do that sooner, or it will take at least that so much time?
1: So, so no, actually, the the answer is there's a couple things. So, so when you're doing something like this, there's really two two trains that determine you know the bottleneck or two 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 different buckets that determine the bottleneck, I should say. The first is the science, right? Cells only grow at a certain rate. And, and we can't really push the rate at which cells grow. But we're not hitting that limit right now. At this point, where we're confident that we're, you know in the next few months, going to schedule uh, our first interaction with the Food and Drug Administration, get their feedback. Um, we've got the clini- clinical team ready. And they're beginning to prepare for this. Um, what we need to do is we need to raise capital faster. And and what I do want to impress upon your listeners is that this is not a black hole. I feel as though many times with, with nonprofits and, and initiatives in the world that it feels as though no matter how much you give, it'll truly never solve the problem. But, but I don't look at the, at it this way. What we're trying to do is we're trying to solve the root cause of the problem. You know, there's a lot of organizations that will, will buy wheelchairs for kids, will provide them support, will provide them, you know, an accessible camp. I don't want to have to do that. I don't want to ever have to need to buy a wheelchair to go to an accessible camp. I want to fix the problem at its root cause. And that's what this does. And so to your, to your listeners far and wide, I encourage you to help out and, and donate and, and take part however you can, whether it's by donating a few cents or a few dollars or, or much more, you know, we welcome all of that. And, and your donation completely and absolutely translates into accelerating this therapeutic development. Um, you know, one thing I also want to convey is, uh, that we partner across the board, whether it's with a, a corporation, for instance, we just did a a uh, coin box campaign with a group of 300 convenience stores here in the northeast of the united states a company called global partners and that that's been an amazing campaign because we're a very small team and so doing things like this where 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 everyday customers have the opportunity to donate a few cents in a coin box that ultimately gets donated back to cure rare disease so that we can we can support our researchers that is enabling that is what is going to help us win this battle faster, um, and 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 to 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 summarize, you know, again, whether it's whether it's a few cents of a donation, uh, whether it's whether it's reaching out to try and become more involved with the organization, either as a board member, a committee member, a volunteer, or whether you're, you know, you know the listeners that you have are 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 the leaders of of companies. That want to partner with us, whether through grants or whether through corporate partnerships, such as this uh, Coinbox campaign I just mentioned, you know, businesses with a retail front are great because that's an area where we can show the world the cutting edge work that we're doing and the lives that we're trying to save. And it helps the business because I think, you know, today business gets is getting a, a, a worse rap than it did than it did years ago. But there are businesses out there who care. And there are businesses out there who want to see and make the world a better place. And um, it's, it's to those individuals and businesses that I would say, you know, come find us. Let's talk. Um, our, our, our website is www.cureraredisease.org. And, and, you know, no matter where you are in the world, it's, it's uh, thankfully with technology, it's a smaller world. But no matter where you are, you know, feel free to reach out. Let's have a conversation. Um, you know, you never know when rare disease is going to touch your family. I I certainly, I certainly didn't.
0: More power to you, I must say. We're going to attach the donation link in the show notes of this and uh, encourage all our community members to chip in. And because you're not just solving this problem for Terry, it's a a problem for 10% of the world. And I really thank you for doing this.
1: Thank Um, you so much.
0: I want to, I I want to commend you for building up an organization so quickly. And because uh, this is a hard problem to tackle, this is an expensive problem to tackle. Um, How did uh, your training at HBS or work before that, how did that prepare you to, to to accelerate this process? Because a lot of the stuff that you've learned is on the job. I want to understand the role of um, any work experience that might have provided for this or, uh, business school training, maybe undergrad—that uh, some lessons that uh, that that you're drawing upon today as you build the organization, as well as try and solve the problem in a very accelerated frame.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I I, I would say that there's the the answer is twofold. The the first uh, part of the answer that I would say is is the training in undergrad and grad school, and that's simply not simply, but it's it's more so. Teaching you how to ask smart questions. I think when you're working on any problem that's worth solving that matters, you you obviously don't have most of the information, whether it's not known or whether it's just not not created yet. Um, but being able to ask the right questions and be able to and being not scared to ask those questions, it goes a long way. you know when when I first started this i I didn't know a lot about the disease. you know, growing up I knew I knew how it manifested itself and I knew. The how how the doctors tried to treat it, but I really didn't know any of the science behind it, and so that that really morphs into the second part of the answer, which is surround yourself with with mentors who who you can get help from, uh, whether it's whether it's uh, you know a, a once a month or every few week conversation. Mentors act as a really good sounding board, and mentors who are more advanced or much more advanced in their career. They've seen some of the problems that you've seen. You know, a, a, another very close mentor of mine is is Jamie Haywood, and and Jamie in the lat uh, in the pre in the late '90s, early 2000s started an organization called ALS Therapy Development Institute, and and he, much like myself, had a brother who was impacted by a rare disease. In this case, Jamie's brother John was impacted by ALS, and and Jamie formed an organization that was nimble, lean, and 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 working to do great things in the world. And, and he's somebody that I, I, I think in, in extremely high of. And it's somebody that I can ask these questions that nobody has an answer to say that, you know, how do we think about figuring this out? Because what we're doing, you know, to my earlier point is, a lot of this work, there are no answers yet. The answers simply haven't been created, and so surrounding yourselves with people who who are willing to engage in in a, in a productive dialogue, who are willing to take risks, who who have a who have a broad vision and and a and a drive to get them there, that's really been one of the most influential things in my in my time here so far in biotechnology is is the people.
0: Any parting message for young people trying to solve uh, challenging issues?
1: Yeah, you know, I I would say it's it's too early for me to look back on this process because we're not we're not all the way through the first one yet, and and really have a good perspective. You know, I think that'll come in the coming years. But but right now, what I would encourage your listeners to, especially those who are young and and thinking about what they want to do in the world, the world's got a lot of problems. You know, you don't have to look too far to find them. But but these problems aren't unsolvable. These aren't problems that we as a collective society and civilization can't fix. And so, you know, specifically, if, if, if one of your listeners' loved ones is impacted by a, a disease, a rare disease, a genetic disease, whatever, you know, you don't have to be a scientist to make great change in the world. And in fact, having an outside perspective oftentimes helps make the field progress further faster because you don't, get the, you don't get the echo chamber effect. And so to, to the listener, I was encouraged, dream big. And, and no problem is too big to solve. And, and you might fail. You probably will fail. But, but in the learning and the trying, you'll, you'll change the world.
0: What a powerful thought. Thank you so much for your time. We truly, truly appreciate it. And uh, we encourage all our listeners to truly contribute, be a part of this mission. And, you know, help you and people like you trying to solve difficult problems and try and do our bit in accelerating this. We genuinely appreciate.